And welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at WMCN 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. Got a great show here for you this afternoon. We're in studio with Devin Palmer, former pro triathlete. Devin, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Great to hear. For, great to have you here. We're excited to uh, learn a little bit about triathlon, as I know uh, essentially nothing about the sport and can't swim. So, <laughs> Hey, I'm here to help. <laughs> I am grateful for all of your assistance. Uh, as we always do, um, we go through a little bit of information from the track world. The Minsk World Cup uh, kicking off the track World Cup season is happening even as we speak over in uh, Belarus. And Jen Valente is the star of the show. She has just been lighting it up. In fact, yesterday she had a ridiculous day. Not only did she win the Team Pursuit gold, they set a track record over there. They also, she also won the points race and had a bronze in the scratch race after winning both of her qualifying heats in those events. Uh, she's going to be racing in the Omnium and I believe is also going to be racing in the individual pursuit 
So she's got a lot of work yet ahead of her, but she's blowing the place up right now. Uh, Ashton Lambie and John Croom are both racing in the individual pursuit and team pursuit, along with a good core of uh, men enduro racers. And we've got also a couple of women sprinters over there representing the U.S. So lots of great track racers in Belarus and lighting the place up. Next one coming up is in Glasgow, Scotland on the 8th to 10th. So next weekend, we've got the next World Cup, uh, and that's going to be over in Scotland, and I believe leave. Valente, Lambie, and company will all be over there as well. So we're going to shift gears to uh, multi-sport. We've got Devin Palmer, who's a retired pro triathlete. Devin, talk a little bit about how you become a triathlete, a pro triathlete. It's pretty easy. So if you're a skilled racer and you're mm-hmm. racing fast, there's just a USA Triathlon has a few different qualification standards. You place a certain way in certain races, you're good to go. So it really isn't a matter of you have to pass through a certain number of qualifying rounds or anything like nope, that. Nope. So cycling, you go five, four, three, two, one. Once you're cat one, you try and do something fancy. So a pro team will pick you up. None of that. Hmm. So it's, it's a very clear cut. Like, oh, you were third place in X qualifying race. Right. You're qualified to race as a pro. Wow. Play. Okay. So Seems- if you're good enough to be a pro, it's extremely easy to qualify. That's People great. People who are reaching to achieve the standard, mm-hmm. they should not be racing as a pro. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that's one of those things where you can get it over your head pretty quick. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How long had you been racing uh, or competing am- as an amateur before you decided that pro was the way to go? So I started in 06. Mm-hmm. I went pro in 2010. So I had four seasons of amateur racing under my belt. And how many, how many races uh, had you been doing in a season prior to that? Four to eight or so. Okay. I wasn't super ambitious with my schedule. There are people who do dozen or more. There are people who do like 20 plus. Right. But four to eight was about as much as I mentally had energy for. Yeah, I'm sure there's both a mental and a physical aspect to recovering and preparing for your next event. Yeah, and being in Minnesota, obviously, we have a pretty tight window. Yeah, it's about five minutes. Yep. (laughs) Give or take. And uh, did you come to the sport from one of the disciplines in particular to begin with? You know, I mean, a lot of people come from a specific background and, and expand to the other disciplines. So I grew up swimming. Okay. I was very unmotivated. I just didn't care. I didn't <laughs> want to be there. My mom made me go to practice. So my whole childhood, I'm forced to swim. Come high school. Ah, mom. Mom. <laughs> high school, I took an actual interest in it. I was like, oh, wait, this is like going fast. It's mm-hmm. good. I like to race. Yeah. Um, so I picked up running as well in high school. So I went into college having a big ambition for both swimming and running, but mm-hmm. I went to a Big Ten school. So there was absolutely no room on either the swimmer right. or the I mean, roster. That's, a, that's a, a scholarship level sport at that point, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Big Ten, they're, like, they're at a super high level. So I could have gone to a smaller D3 school and been, like I could have been a middle-of-the-pack Mayak mm-hmm. runner or swimmer. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't have been stellar in a, in a Mayak setting even. And so, uh, how did you pick up the bike component then? Had you already uh, had had you been a cyclist in the past, or not at all? Really? So I picked it up. Um, let's see, going in, I think just going into my first year of triathlon. It was after my freshman year of college. Okay. And uh, so got a Trek twenty one hundred on eBay. Nice. Called it a day. <laughs> That's great. And and at what point after that sort of initial. Um, collection of sports that you'd been participating in in college. When did you do your first triathlon? What was the the sort of sequence of events there? So I went, uh, my freshman year, I went over to Madison. And okay. I joined the crew team for about two weeks. Right. And I'm not 6'2", so they really had no, 
the the day I realized I was going to quit, they had me as the um, what, what's the what's the fellow who does the directing, the little the coxswain, right? I was they stuck me in the coxswain. I was like, <laughs> no, okay, maybe this is just not for me. So I kind of bailed on that. And I would I, dig that job, just sitting there yelling at people. That would be awesome. I didn't know what I was doing. Oh. Was, no, it was not good. <laughs> So I quit the crew team, joined the triathlon club over there because I said, ah, I got two of the three. Um, I'll probably enjoy biking too. Yeah. So I, it was after that year I did four triathlons that summer. Hmm. And I was, I was all in. Wow. And, and what then, as you went through those, those couple of seasons of being an amateur, at what point and what were some of the critical things that led you to go, you know what, I could actually make it, make a little bit of money at this. It was, for me, it was just really exciting because it was, I knew where I stood in swimming and running. Mm-hmm. The times are super clear. There's such deep talent pools. Like, yep. I know, okay, I'm middle of the pack D3 at best. Right. You know, it's like, I know how many hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of athletes mm-hmm. are way better. Yep. So to get to triathlon and to get closer to the top of the heap within a few years mm-hmm. and be racing fast, that was super exciting. So it was finally an outlet where it's like I could re- achieve the level of success I'd wanted in those other sports, but I wasn't, I wasn't good enough for it. And did those, uh, the swimming and the running propel you to the, to the top there? I mean, was that kind of the stuff that led you to be successful in triathlon initially? My first couple seasons, it was, I was, I was racing well off the swim and run. Mm-hmm. And it took me about two years. Then going into my third year, I figured out the bike. Okay. So my second year in 07, almost every single race I did, I went about 23 miles an hour. Mm. Just that was it. And then by 08, with better, a little better training, better focus, and a little better equipment, mm-hmm. I gained about three miles an hour. Wow. So in 08, I was starting to average 26 for short course races. Boy, that's that covers up a lot of sins, right? I mean, oh, if yeah. you can take that much time off the bike, which is the longest distance, right? Mm-hmm. And the most time, right? Isn't it the most time? Or does the Almost run take... It's yeah. So you would it would seem that improving on the bike is your fastest way to really change your position in the field, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And so, um, what distances did you typically race? What were th- what were the distances that you most frequently raced? You do you because we had a pretty vibrant scene here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I had plenty of opportunities to race duathlon, short course, you know, like the sprint races, which mm-hmm. take an hour. A few Olympics a year, which take two hours, mm-hmm. and then I would do. Sometimes a couple half Ironmans or an Ironman a year. And how long are the half and the full Ironman? They take uh, a half is going to take you four hours, and a full is going to take you eight and a half to nine. Right. That's a long time to do anything. It's a long time. It's just a real long time. <laughs> I don't have that kind of an attention span. <laughs> I never ended up doing more than one Ironman a year. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I would sign up for more than one often, <laughs> but somehow only one of them would get done. Yeah. And, and what was your favorite distance? I mean, what was the, what was the distance that you felt was best suited for you? I enjoyed a good sprint mm-hmm. when I was on form, you know, an hour race, you can go pretty hard and you don't have to live with the consequences that much. <laughs> and Olympic, the international distance that takes two hours, mm-hmm. you're swimming a mile, you're biking 25 and you're running six miles. Mm-hmm. You can really, if you blow it, it's ten k is hard. Yeah, I bet. Tank, if you really blow it on a ten k, it's very miserable. And and you're gonna you're gonna see it right away. I bet in that ten k, if you've gone hard in the in the bike and put everything you've got into the swim. Yeah, if you, you, and I I did plenty of those races. That distance, the two hour distance, man, I would 
I could always, I would usually get two right. Yeah. Swim and bike or the bike and run mm-hmm. or even sometimes the swim and run. I Very rarely did I feel like I got my best in all three in an Olympic distance. It's so hard. I'm, I'm curious about the psychology that you're experiencing in that event. So let's say you come out of the water and you're in the lead or mm-hmm. you're in the top two or three. How does that change the way you're thinking about the bike segment? If I'm, depends on who's in the race with me. Okay. So in my, some of my good races in kind of 2011, 2012, in the local scene, it would have been me and a fellow named Pat Parrish and a fellow named Dan Hedgecock. Mm -hmm. And those two were D1 runners in their day. Wow. So they, I had a little edge on the bike. Mm -hmm. They were going to way outrun me. Mm -hmm. And then I was faster in the swim. So my game plan was gap them in the swim, blow out that gap to a 90 second lead on the bike. Mm -hmm. And then then try to hang on. They can't quite catch me. Right. But if I didn't achieve a suitable gap after the bike, they mm-hmm. were going to run me right down. Yeah. So, so it was in, if a guy like that was there who I knew, okay, this guy can make up 20 or 30 seconds on the run, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I got to, it's full gas on the bike to get my gap as big as possible. Yeah. And then you're paying consequences potentially in the, in the run. Eh, it, 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 most of the time, if I blew it in one of the sports, it's more about preparation than execution. Like sometimes it's about execution, but a lot of time it's just, I wasn't quite in shape for that. Sure. That leg of the race. Yeah. Did you have a particular race that was your favorite? Oh, we had, we had a lot of really fun races here. Um, I always enjoyed the one out in White Bear Lake, the Manitou Sprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, that beautiful event. The one in Waconia was a lovely, lovely race. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one up in Annandale, hmm. part of the Lakes Tribe. That one I think is still going. Cool. That was that was a fun one as well. Yeah, and the Maple Grove Triathlon came along sometime. They launched in 2010. That's so what I thought. Yeah, so yeah, right was, when you became a pro. Yeah, that was yeah. a good year. That year, uh, I was the only real pro there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made 500 bucks. Hey, it was I was living good. Yeah, that's fantastic. That year, um, it was me and Pat Parrish were the only fast guys there. Yep. And uh, I came into the second transition, and I saw Pat's bike on the rack. Hmm. And you know, Pat, Pat, you know, because he, I would be out of the water before him. Yeah. And I always rode faster than him. Hmm. So to see his bike, and I knew he had not, obviously, I would know if someone passed me. I was right. like, oh, awesome, Pat dropped out. <laughs> so I was so relaxed on the run. Come to find out, he had just gotten lost on the bike. So oh, he had no. cut, cut a piece of the course off at some stage. <laughs> and so he thought, he, you know, because he did the full run, and he rolled right. through the finish line like, yeah, yes. I did it. I'm done. Rel- and then however many five minutes later, I rolled through like, yeah, I did it. It's <laughs> like, oh, uh, sorry, Pat. Wow. That's funny. Do you have like a particular standout memory of a of a race that was particularly memorable, good, bad, or ugly? Oh, there, I got I got a number. You know, yeah, I did it for ten years. So right. on the upswing when I was starting to get fast, it was so exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, like my that first year in '08 when I was biking well. Yep, it kind of took me by surprise a little bit too because it was like. Okay, I know I'm racing guys I know and I've been looking up to for a mm-hmm. couple years. Wait a minute, did I just drop them on the bike? <laughs> cool. So that that kind of a feeling like that happened first at the Manitou Sprint in mm-hmm. 08. Mm-hmm. And I, I dropped all the guys that I wanted to beat. I was like, oh my gosh. And of course, one of them came back to me, Kevin O'Connor, who ran uh, Gear Rest all those years. Mm-hmm. He, 
yeah, he smoked me pretty good on the run. But <laughs> it didn't even it didn't it didn't diminish my excitement one iota. Yeah. And I'm sure some of those incremental wins, right? Those are the things that really bolster your confidence. Oh, yeah. If you say, you know what, I had a really good day on the bike today. Yep. That's got that to be good. So June 08, I got second in Manitou, beaten by Kevin, mm-hmm. who was old man at that point. He was yeah. like already 38, 39, maybe he was 40. Wow. So it was he was really Yeah. Ancient. Ancient. And he <laughs> just housed me you know he was still late 30s okay um and then i won i think it was the next weekend there's one out in uh west metro the liberty triathlon it was a half at that time Mm -hmm. so i won that i entered super late Mm -hmm. i went in my age group wave not in the front wave Hmm. the three fellows in the front wave goofed up on the bike oh wow so they took a they did a little detour where they went back to transition and back onto the course oh man lap so they goofed up and that cost him one to five minutes, whatever. Wow. And then one of them blew up. I actually caught him on the run. One of them was still winning and still crossed the finish line first. Mm-hmm. But because I went in my age group wave, I came in second after him. Right. But I was, the gap was small enough that I had actually won. That's awesome. And then the other fellow who could have easily won this the whole thing completely got lost and came rolling like he got lost on the run wow it's an out and back on a park trail and he got lost wow he came rolling in later like oh what happened it's like well you could have won but you chose not to (laughs) oh man so i won by accident there and then uh, (laughs) probably one of my more bitter losses was this race in waconia it's an hour and a half race so it's like a 20-ish mile bike and a four mile run yeah and i kind of had a game plan i knew like okay i'm gonna out swim Mm -hmm. The fast runners, I'm going to try and edge, you know, put my little extra gap in on the bike. Yep. And then hold on. And it, like, I executed and it worked. And then within the last three-quarter of a mile, like, the multi-time defending champ, Brian Bish, was the man. At that time, he was the man in the state. Hmm. Um, he caught me and passed me within the last half mile. Wow. Oh. And I look back at that, like, he was literally twice my age because I was maybe 21. He hmm. was 42. Hmm. Like, Damn it. You ran a two hundred three on the track in the eight hundred. Like, yeah, you could have easily beat this old man. Like, if I, <laughs> if I had known, if I had had the mental stamina, like, okay, I'm going to endure about two minutes of intense pain. Yep, just to stay on his heels, mm-hmm. and then put in the kick. I, I should have the speed to light him up in a sprint. Yeah. So wow. that was one of my bigger. Like, I look back at the, like, oh, that's an aha. Could have beat Brian Bish because he was. <laughs> he had a he had a real run. There was a good established series where all the f- local fast guys went for okay. years. Yep. And he had a run of just dominance. Yeah. So that was coming, you know, he's 42, so he was, you know, pushing the limits physically, like mm-hmm. just kind of coming to the tail end of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I almost got Brian. Wow. Almost got <laughs> Missed it by that much. It by that much. I think I did get him in a couple of races a few years later. Yeah. That's really cool. No. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. In studio with me is Devin Palmer. We are talking all things triathlon uh, today. Devin is a retired pro triathlete from here in the Twin Cities. Um, Devin, one of the things that I'm curious about in the last few years, and I don't know exactly when they started really making draft legal triathlons um, sort of ubiquitous. Before that, you you weren't able to hide from the wind behind somebody yep. in most of the triathlons. When did that transition take place, and did you compete in both? So draft legal, the origin story is that's how our sport snuck into the Olympics. Ah. Because when they're talking to the Olympic committee, they're like, oh, you want to do a race where you swim for 20 minutes, 
You go away for 50 minutes on the bike, mm -hmm. and then you run a 10K. Well, right. that's not exciting. Super boring TV. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not dynamic. It's not engaging. Right. So they shifted the sport, like, okay, how can we tinker? How can we evolve the sport? Hmm. So it's like, okay, let's make it basically a crit on the bike. Yep. And eight laps, so you can Interesting. set up. You can, it's more a more consolidated course versus right. you don't need 25 miles of road. Right. You do a bunch of laps on a shorter course. Yep. Yeah. And everyone's together. It's a little more exciting. And mm -hmm. then they come off together, and it's just uh, a knife fight on the run. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I mean, triathletes sort of in the past had had a reputation of not being able to ride their bikes. Terrible bike handling skills. But obviously, that has to change when you're in a draft legal environment, right? Yes, in theory. <laughs> yes, in theory. I think they're... The level, the level of handling in those fields is certainly way better. Yeah, and those athletes are were the first time they were in the Olympics was two thousand. Mm -hmm. so we're twenty years in now. So yep, there's been a lot more grooming and development of you know the top tier athletes going into that pipeline. Yep, so they're better, but they're not great. So is uh, is is uh, draft legal pretty much universal now in triathlon? Absolutely, not. it is. Oh, really? Absolutely not. No. no. So it's weird. It's it's what we do in the Olympics, mm -hmm. but your average triathlete will never race draft legal. Interesting. Not once. Not once in their career. Interesting. I've done it a couple of times, you know, because hmm. I was 21, 22. So there sure. were certain, like, U23 races where mm -hmm. you could just jump in and it was draft legal. Right. So I've done it maybe twice. Interesting. But most people will never, ever do it. And most people are not. It would not be appropriate. Yeah. Because um, if you think, like, if you, you put on a race. Yep. It's like, okay, I'm going to put on a race where... I'm bringing out a population I know is not suited for draft riding. Mm -hmm. Put them on a crit course. Yeah. And they're type A competitive people. <laughs> Would you sign up for that kind of liability it's as a promoter? In in a time trial environment, you know, where you're on aero bars and in a difficult to control bike situation, not a chance. Nope. And those, those right, to be fair, those races, they don't ride the full board tri bike. You ride, you ride, yeah, you I ride suppose they do bike. ride stock yep. in, in those typically, don't they? Yeah, yep. that's true. That's but it's, true. It's, it's a weird dynamic because it's like that's the best talents in our sport mm -hmm. go the Olympic pipeline. Sure. And so they're racing a different, let's get a vastly different dynamic than, yeah. uh, than the average person. Like mm -hmm. you go to lifetime in Lake Nokomis over in Minneapolis, you know, it's, it's just a regular, yeah. regular non-draft race. Right. Interesting. And how do they patrol that? I mean, how do they manage to keep an eye on people who are out there? Is it just the honor system? A lot of events, it is flat out the honor system, mm -hmm. and then some like it's if it's if it's a USA triathlon event, mm -hmm. sanctioned event, mm -hmm. there are certain rules they have to abide by. Okay, and they're going to have marshals out on the course. Yeah, so there'll be a couple of people on motorbikes out patrolling. Right, but largely it goes unchecked. Yep, and it's it's worst like it happens some at local races. Mm -hmm. It certainly happens like. There are people who have reputations at local races for mm -hmm. just openly drafting. No big deal. <laughs> you know, so they that that is what it is. So that would always be a little irritating to me to know, like, okay, if I'm breaking away off the front mm -hmm. and I got so and so and so and so working together, yep. you know, basically basically right on each other's wheel. Right. That was always flustering. I'm sure. Um where it's worst is in those like Ironman branded events. Mm-hmm. You get an Ironman 70.3 or a full Ironman. Yep. You got two to 3,000 people on that course. Right. How do you manage that many people? Yeah. And most of them are swimming. They're coming out of the water. If it's an Ironman, they're swimming 60 to 90 minutes, the vast majority of them. Wow. So it's 30 minutes. You're putting two, 3,000 people out starting the bike together. Wow. And, it, you know, at, it, at 
slow levels of racing it happens mm-hmm. and then even at higher amateur levels like hmm. i went to the world championship for half ironman mm-hmm. clearwater florida in 20, 2008 mm-hmm. it it was basically draft legal wow like every age group wave would go yep. and it was the 25 best of that five-year age group in the world so they're all pretty fit yeah it's like everyone's gonna swim within a couple minutes mm-hmm. and then because it's a totally flat florida course well you got 20 guys who are very competitive looking to win right so when i did it i was very disappointed like i swam well enough to be a little out of, out of the front of all that mm-hmm. and then the pack rolled me up wow and some i think he was a european dude as the pack was rolling me up he was irritated i was kind of in the way so he whistled at me like whoop get out of the way buddy Wow. Come on, man. Wow. That's so not bro. And you see it like at our Crown Jewel Kona, mm-hmm. you know, the Ironman World right. Championship. Yep. It, it's 2,000 people drafting each other. It's just, let's, <laughs> n- no one talks about it that much, but you see the photos from the age group race out there. It's like, oh, oh okay, gosh. they're just in a big Peloton. How do they not crash everywhere? Some of them do. Yeah. Oh, it, at Ironman Wisconsin one year. I always watch at the top of one of the five-minute climbs. Okay. She took Gallup climb, and she thought she was skilled enough to crest the hill, sit up, and take a jacket off. Oh, boy. Uh, she was not. Oh, boy. So there's a fair amount of crashing. <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> so how many races would you do in a season when you, were, when you were a pro? When I was going pro, I would say eight to ten. Okay. So I'd have my baseline of local races. I'd mm-hmm. do one or two a month yep. from May to September, mm-hmm. and then... You know, handpick a few pro races. Hopefully, a couple of pro races I can drive to. Mm-hmm. Maybe one or two pro races I have to fly for. Yep. I, I got to believe maintaining consistent fitness throughout the season and being able to peak for races in at the right amount of time is is tricky, especially when you're traveling a fair amount to, to so races. Because swimming, swimming is the worst. Like if you miss practice, you're host. You're, yeah. you're losing so much fitness. So I would I would always be struggling, especially with that. Like if you go. If I start my travel Thursday or Friday, I'm going to miss one or two practices. I probably won't make it back till Monday. So maybe I'm not doing a full practice again until from Wednesday to Wednesday. Yeah. And I've only swum in a little hotel pool and done a little open water swimming when I was at the venue. So mm-hmm. it's it's hard to keep your eye on all three and keep keep your form together. And that it happened to me constantly where mm-hmm. I would be biking well, running well, and I'd lose my swim a little bit or mm-hmm. I'd be running well, swimming well, and oop, something would happen. I'd feel a little off on the bike. Yeah. That cross training, making sure you're you're training for all three of those disciplines, that seems like one of the biggest challenges to managing your schedule. Oh, yeah. It's it's hard. Even, you know, I lived the life. Yeah. I, I was in it. I, right. That's all I was doing for a few years there. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to maintain. Just keep a, keep an eye on all three of them. Make sure I bet. I'm on sharp form in all three of them. Yeah. And for, you know, for the average person, if you want to be good, you got to do any given thing three times a week, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, that's three swim practices a week, three mm-hmm. times on the bike a week, three runs a week. Okay, that's nine sessions a week. So a couple times a week, you're at least doing a double. Yeah. And you fit that into a parent's lifestyle or if you're, if you're working 60 hours a week. Yeah, I was just going to say, how do, you, how do you do that in, as a hobby? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so now I've transitioned away from triathlon. I'm an employed adult. Yep. Now I, we just had our first child. Congratulations. Employed married adult. Thank you, thank you. How do these people do it? Yeah. I was, I, just, you know, because I, I had the, for better or for worse, I had that opportunity to really live the life mm-hmm. and train, eat, sit on the couch, train again, 
you know. Yeah. You know, it, amazing. I, I don't get it. Blows my mind. Yeah, how, it you, seemed, how you could prepare properly prepare for an Ironman with a family and with a career. Yeah, you know, without and, ignoring one of those others. And because of that training demand, it always feels like triathlon demands almost an obsessive personality. I mean, because you almost have to be able to carve out that much time just diligently all the time to make it successful. Big time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like this would be one of the most challenging sports to train for because you have to do so much in so many different venues. Yeah. So the other thing that I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, when I see a video or watch these races live, the Ironmans or whatever, and you talked about, you know, 2000 people in the water at the same time, how do you not get a concussion every six feet in the water? (laughs) You you gotta, you gotta uh, protect your neck. You gotta be watching out. Yeah. Um, I, I went almost entirely unscathed in all my years of racing. Yeah. Uh, It's pure chaos, especially, you know, the start of a pro race, Mm -hmm. you're there with 20 or 30 aggressive men and uh, it's it's a different (laughs) vibe. Yep. But I, I managed to keep my head down just enough to never get clocked. Wow. Um, with the real mass start of 2000 together, if you're worried about it, you just start at the back. Yeah. You start a little bit towards the outside. Okay. Sure. So if you're prudent, you position yourself. If you don't want to be part of the chaos, you position yourself. Out right. That makes sense. Or you just swim faster and it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. One of the other mechanical pieces of the of the race that seems almost like an art form to get right is the transition. I mean, you got to get off, out of the water, onto a bike, off the bike, start running. What are the keys to success in that kind of environment? How do you make that work? It is so unglamorous. My first <laughs> my first event ever, I showed up with. S- 60 different items in transition. Like, oh, I might need this, and I'll have an extra bottle of Gatorade, and I'll have a little bit of... Uh, I need a towel yeah, and a stocking cap. All that and stuff. <laughs> and very quickly, it's like, okay, I don't need that, 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 right. that. So you just still distill it down. Um, at the end, it's like, okay, I only bring a short list of things. Mm-hmm. And so each step, it's a quick one, two, do this, and you're on your way. Yeah. So you, you figure out a good protocol. But you do see a lot of people floundering with it, like, ooh, like you need to... You need to think through your steps here a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I notice that almost everybody leaves their shoes in their clips yep. on the pedals of the bike. So how do you manage getting into your shoes on the bike while they're on the bike? That seems that seems really tricky to me. It's it's not as bad as you would think. It's hmm. it's we're triathletes. OK, we can't go around a corner, but we did. <laughs> we found a way we to slip into our, our shoes. shoes. <laughs> yeah, we can put our shoes on. It's because you want to get it, you want to get out, you want to get up to speed. I, yeah, I totally and, get the uh, co- yeah. the concept. It makes it makes total sense. It just seems like that would be a really challenging thing to do, especially with people trying to knock you down to get to their bike. And well, you're all okay. You're not you're not mounting your bike in the transition area. Okay, you're running into transition. Got it. You put your helmet on. You grab your bike. You roll. Got and it. And then there's a mount dismount line. Okay. So it's it would be totally it would be real disastrous if yeah. you're not going to mount right in transition. And as you're as you're working through that kind of a crowd, I got to believe traffic management is tricky too, right? When you're trying to get in and out of that space where your bike is, it can get a little dicey because you you know they'll set up the racks and they're in these little corridors. I would imagine if you go to an Ironman at like minute eighty, mm-hmm. when four hundred people might be coming out of the water all at the same time. Yep. If a bunch of you are in the same age group on the same rack, it mm-hmm. could be real chaos. Yep. It seems like there's an opportunity to lose a lot of time, but also if you've got that dialed in, like you talked about, to 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 make up some time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're um, 
you know, if you're a lackluster swimmer and you need to pull back a few seconds to get closer to everyone back on the bike, mm -hmm. um, you're going to want to, you're going to want to have a real smooth first transition. Yeah. What, uh, did you ever wear a wetsuit? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's Minnesota. <laughs> it's Minnesota. <laughs> what was your threshold for a wetsuit? Well, the, uh, the, here, it's the rules. So the rules oh. is for amateurs. I think it's a 78 degree cutoff. Okay. Um, and air temperature, water temperature. Yep. So if it's, uh, if it's chilly water, you really want it. Yeah. Um, there's a whole range where you could or could not wear it within the rules, mm -hmm. but it's 78 is pretty warm to me. Yeah. It's like, I prefer, I think most pro rules, it was a little cooler. It was like 76. Okay. Cut off. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So it, I, I preferred not to wear it if it was on the edge. Sure. But there's, they are a huge advantage. I can you imagine. You get buoyancy, it brings you up. You're way more efficient with that. Yep. And I suppose with those some of those materials, too, you're going to get a little bit more aerodynamic or hydrodynamic, I guess. A little bit. I think I think it's mostly the buoyancy. Yeah. Because you know? we had, they launched swim skins. Mm -hmm. So if it's wetsuit illegal, well, then they're going to trick you into buying a two to $300 swim skin that you put <laughs> over the top of your race suit. Because most of the race suits, <laughs> in fairness, are not fast in the right. water. So right. you, a, a swim skin was an advantage. But a lot of brands came out with those like, ooh. We can sell you a $500 wetsuit and then sell you a $300 swim skin. So we got you coming and going. <laughs> That's fantastic. They can make money off of you in any way, they can, any way possible, which right? Way. And then they changed <laughs> the rules with swim skins. I don't know if you remember around 08 or 2012 in the Olympics. In swimming, they got rid of some of the super suits, like right. the really, really fast ones. Yep. So mm -hmm. in triathlon, I think there was some, also some changes in mm -hmm. what's allowed and not allowed. Yeah. You, in case you're just joining us, you're listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We've got uh, a number of things going on this uh, weekend here on campus. And uh, one of the things is we've got an upcoming show at The Cove featuring McAllister's very own chairman, Dan, Nico, Robbie, and Louise, with a debut set from Embarrassed Babbitt. Lana, Phoebe, and Grace, and coming all the way from St. Olaf. Ooh, they're letting Olies into this stuff now? This is kind of crazy. Uh, we also have ointment appointment. Please join us for some cool live music and festivities before you go out to the go out for Halloween. The show is tonight, November 2nd. The doors are at 6, music at 7. Pay what you can. All funds go to travel and hosting costs for the bands. We're here in studio with Devin Palmer, retired pro triathlete. And we're talking all things triathlon. Retired. Retired. Heavy on the retired. Yes. <laughs> it's a short career, right? I mean, just like any any serious athletic pursuit, that's a kind of a short career window. Yes and no. Some people some people stayed successful and kept doing it well, mm -hmm. like basically up till forty. Like there were certain pros who they hit their twilight years, they were hitting their stride around thirty five yep. and then had some great halcyon years. Mm-hmm. Almost up until forty, they were racing almost wow. at the world class level. Wow! So there are a lot of people who do it at that level. There are other people who just they fall in love with the lifestyle mm -hmm. and quit. Yep. <laughs> they don't want to get a job. They just want to <laughs> exercise all day. So they just they drag it out, but they're obviously sustaining themselves another way. Sure. And then it, for amateurs, it was crazy. There were people who did it every year forever, and it was wow. the thing. And then there were people who would come and go within two to four years. Mm -hmm. You'd see them join the sport, do a few. Get excited, get injured, quit. Yeah. Well, I got to believe, and this is kind of a great opportunity to transition to discussion of what it means to be a pro. Yep. You know, obviously, non-ball sports, it's hard to make money at the level that you would imagine a pro athlete makes. How well, I'm still very wealthy. 
<laughs> the, your tens of dollars that you got from your career, right? Tens and tens <laughs> and tens of dollars. <laughs> so how did you how did you manage that? What were what were your relationships like with sponsors? How did you develop those sponsor relationships? It's all about who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you work you work a little bit with sponsorship with a couple of events that you put on, so you know the deal. It's it's who you know um, and providing them value. Mm-hmm. So I had. A friendly enough face that I could get in the door kind of out of the blue some places. Mm-hmm. Like Peace Coffee was one. Hmm. I just reached out to him. Hey, I love your stuff. Yeah. I'm a local athlete. Can we have a chat? And we had a chat. It went well. And so I repped Peace Coffee for a couple seasons. Mm-hmm. But the extent of that support was 18 bags of coffee every month. Right. <laughs> I think it was I think it was around that number. And, and so there's only so many you can drink. So in I'm month, saving right? $20 a month off my lifestyle costs. Right. I don't have to buy coffee anymore. Right. Yep. Wow. Yep. And then I'm distributing the rest um, for marketing purposes. Sure. So it was not the, it, it, it was, I consider it generous as it was, it's not nothing coming off their books. Right. Um, just for one person. Absolutely. So I, I see, I see kind of what the real cost is on mm-hmm. there. And, yep. And then, but also, for, you know, for me, it was as I guess you would have to admit it was more for fun to mm-hmm. work with a brand like that than yeah. anything else. And what kind of expectations did sponsors like Peace Coffee and your, some of your equipment sponsors have for you being engaged in the community? It varied a lot. So the homemade relationships, like a Peace Coffee relationship, sure. it was very low-key. Yep. And they could see that I was hustling on their behalf. I was very industrious on their behalf. Mm-hmm. So there, there wasn't a... Uh, any sort of feeling of like, what are we getting out of this? Right. Um, they weren't asking for metrics and things like that. Yeah. So on um, almost more industry sponsors, there's a more formal, you're plugging into their system instead mm-hmm. of creating your own. So you're, you're plugging into a more formal thing where yep. you're signing a contract saying, I will do this and exchange for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and those contracts, that was not, those were never as fun for me. Yeah. The local businesses were always way more Sure. Fun. Yep. When, uh, you, you, did you get a, a, a bike sponsor at any point? Yep. So in 2013 or 14, mm-hmm. um, I signed with Quintana Roo. Oh, oh nice. So they're American Bicycle Group. They've yep. got Lightspeed. They've got Quintana mm-hmm. Roo. So that was, and that was born off a relationship with my buddy Mac, who did sold a million bikes a year for those guys. Hmm. So he was kind of like the guy right. on the ground, especially in the Midwest, for that brand. Hmm. So I'd known him. My first tri club meeting at Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. before I came back to the University of Minnesota, go Gophers, <laughs> go Badgers. My first tri club meeting, they had this goon come in and he just gave an hour spiel, like, this is what you do about this, this is what you, you know, he just hmm. was t- talking us through everything. And right. we were 19 year olds, so I had never done a triathlon, so I yeah. needed to hear it. That, that was Mac. Interesting. And then he came back into my life in 08. He sponsored a local team that I was on. Mm-hmm. So I was on Quintana Roo for a couple of years for that team. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, then once I was a couple years into my pro career, you know, we worked it out. So I was riding QR again. That's great. You know. So what was the setup on that bike? Do you remember that? Do you still have that bike? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. when, you live, uh, when you live lean, you got to be ready to flip the bikes. So <laughs> with Quintana Roo, I started on their CD01. So it's mm-hmm. an Altegra build bike. Mm. Um, and then they launched a whole new tri-bike like the following year. Hmm. PR6. Okay. So I, in my own way, I went about like, okay, there's nothing in my contract about me getting a PR6. I'm not entitled to one at all. 
and I wouldn't like one. So I'm going to talk about getting one for a year straight. I'm gonna I say love I, it. PR, I had a hashtag, PR64DP. <laughs> so I made it a whole to-do all through 2014. And then uh, eventually Mac was like, okay, okay, okay. Shut so, up. Here's the bike. In August, he called me, okay, let's, <laughs> let's get this going. That's fantastic. But here, okay, here's, here's the breakdown. So my relationship with them, I was entitled to one frame. Okay. So I got a free CDO one frame, mm-hmm. but I bought the built group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was extremely well priced because, sure. it's, you know. It so you must have kit. had a shop sponsor. Well, no, I bought, the, it was just the kit that would have come on the Oh, bike got it, got it, got it. So it was a great deal. Yeah. But it's like, okay, I got a free frame. Right. And then the CDO one, um, I basically just bought one they had inventory. Okay. And I, yeah, it was not. There was nothing free about it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was given a very nice, a very good sure, price, but yeah. it was anything but free. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love the campaign, though. Oh, yeah. That's good. So Did, in like with, with industry sponsors, there's a level where you get discounted stuff. Mm-hmm. Like Rudy Project. If, you, if anyone ever pays full price for Rudy Project, you are a fool. Okay. <laughs> Just a fool. So there's that where you get a you know, discounted product. Yep. There's some where you would get an amount of free product, like I got a free frame. Sure. P.S. I paid for the parts. <laughs> um, and then, like, upper echelon athletes, athletes way above my cal- caliber would get some product mm-hmm. and then also some financial consideration. Right. You know? Yeah, so it's uh, it's yeah. tricky. I mean, you're really just saving costs yep. as a pro more than anything else, right? Yeah, and most, uh, most pros would fall somewhere in a range where they're going to get discounted or some free products. Yeah. And then it's it's really a, a short list who have enough name recognition, have enough success where they would justify. So at that at that in that position, are you basically then trying to win races or get prize money to eat? Is that kind of the the nature of the? No, beast? not at all, <laughs> not at all. So prize money, I think my best season, I made maybe three grand of prize money, hmm. and most of us subsidized the lifestyle, coaching or with a part time job, or right. Doing, hustling around doing this or that. Sure. Um, so I coached triathlon. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my bread and butter consistent income. I coached mm-hmm. high school swimming for a couple of years. I was always, I worked part-time out at Gear West. I was yep. always doing this, that, this, that. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it would be a really tough way to manage your training, right? If you've got to do all that stuff and train, that's a hard lifestyle. Any any distraction, any, any loss of focus is definitely an effect, yeah. And... At the peak level, I was training 25 to 30 hours a week. Yeah. So it's like I really would have needed the time to put in the training mm-hmm. and, and rest and recover. I mean, it's that's like a part-time, part-time job, you yeah. know, to be able to handle to anything else you could do on the side. You're basically doing it in 10 or 15 extra hours a week. And there are, uh, I salute to, there are a lot of regular age group athletes who do have a pretty high, high-power career mm-hmm. and working a, a good job and sure. find a way to still prepare and execute well at Ironman. How many athletes were you coaching at the peak? At, at the top, about 15. Okay. You know, I was never very prudent about the business aspect of that. Mm. So I never, looking back, I know there was a lot of missed opportunities. Like I could have had a couple more athletes. I could have done more for the athletes, mm-hmm. generated a little more revenue. Um, looking back at now, I'm like, yeah. okay, a couple missed opportunities. That's an interesting there. question. So as you think back to 2010, Devin, what would you tell him? about going pro i would still do it yeah i would still do it but i would 
the, the biggest thing is I didn't have a really strong vision for exactly what I wanted out of my career. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my race selection was spur of the moment. This seems uh, like fun. I, w- I, I was great at finding a justification to go do a race. Like, oh, this one suits me because of this, so it's right. worth a plane ticket to Seattle to go do the Lake Stevens 70.3. Sure. Um, so I made a lot of... Th- there were a lot of times I would go and do an event, a travel event, mm-hmm. when I, maybe there was an event I could have driven to and still had an equal shot at getting paid. Right. Um, and I, I just didn't have a strong enough, clear enough picture. Like this is what I want out of this experience. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm calling a success. Right. Um, so I was year to year. My training was a little bit too different year to year. My race goals were too different. Mm. Um, even within a year, like I might sign up for an Ironman. Mm -hmm. I had the luxury of choice. Like, Oh, okay, well I can also sign up for another one. Yeah. So it, the excess of choice was actually a detriment, I would say to my career because I just didn't have a strong enough, vision yeah it seems like you almost need to have sort of a four or five year roadmap laid out in front of you before you even get really too far into it uh, a good roadmap and also total commitment to a few big races mm-hmm. you know especially if you're going to go that Ironman route. sure if you're doing short course and you're just going to race three times a month as long as you can right you know, recovery not, is not as big a deal it, it's not the same level of focus on each event yeah um, but that that wasn't me like I could do usually two a month but Three a month might be pushing it. Just mm-hmm. I don't know if I had the uh, the mojo to do three really good races. Yeah, uh, you were and still are very active on social media. You had a blog that you ran for a long time. How important was that kind of communication to your sponsors? You know, they they noticed the social media side. I don't yeah. think any of them ever really said much about my blog. Hmm. Um, I had pretty small readership. Okay. Um, I don't. I again. Knowing what I know now, I'm sure I could have cultivated better and gotten a bigger following. Sure. Um, but I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Because I, I look back and it's like, dang, that, that was really funny when I wrote that year in 2011. <laughs> oh, man, I didn't more people enjoy this. <laughs> no, but it was a very, uh, it was very, you know, my sense of humor. And right. Like, this is not going to be for everyone. I, I was just going to ask you about that. Yep. So you've, you're, you're kind of known for your sarcastic you know, yep. approach to things. I mean, your Twitter handle is D Palmer trolls. Yep. So it's pretty clear what's, what's happening there. Right. And I didn't, you know, for years I didn't embrace that. I was a troll. And only <laughs> in the last few years have I understood. Like, oh yeah, no, yeah, that's way I, I was the proto troll. <laughs> I'm, I'm good at it. And people like it. <laughs> did, except did, the people I'm making fun of. Right. Did, uh, did that ever get you any hot water with your sponsors? It never did with them. No, you know, I don't, um, I don't go that hard on people. Yeah. Like I'm not really mean. Right. I, well, I am kind of mean sometimes, but <laughs> like I would pick on friends. Yeah. Know, like I'd make jokes with friends. Sure. It's kind of on uh, things that are, would they're not really upset about. Right. So it's like, it's all within, you know, I'm playing within the bounds. I was yep. pretty, pretty good in that regard. Yep. And you know, nothing. I was, when you're talking about the sport, it's like, I'm not that controversial. So. Right. No, I mean, I never got in trouble for any hot takes. It uh, it seems like, you know, much like cycling locally, it's a small community. So it seems like things could sp- spiral out of control pretty fast. Did you ever have a situation where you were joking with somebody and people took it the wrong way or? Yes, I'm 100 percent sure. And I'm, I'm <laughs> the majority of times, maybe because it's Minnesota. I'm sure people just were quietly angry at me and I never heard about it. Or like maybe it's someone who I didn't really know. 
<laughs> and they read something I said and didn't like my take. <laughs> and then they just never had anything to do with me after right. that. So I'm sure there were a few missed opportunities. Like maybe it would have been a coached athlete or something. But they didn't yeah. like what I had to say about the way so-and-so went sure. out in Florida. Yep. Well, and people, once they get to know you, recognize that yep. as part of your, you know, over, so to speak, over, over, your, your, your shtick. My shtick. <laughs> yeah. I, it took me until my 20s to realize, like, oh, I'm just kind of a jerk when people first meet me. Like, they don't know I don't mean it. So it, it, upon a little, upon realizing that, I've tried to be, uh, try to be a normal, just normal enough up front so that people like me, and then they'll accept you know, except my malarkey. Yeah. Uh, you talked about being married and employed and having a good kid things. now. All good all things. Good, all great things. One, yep. two, three, do them. Do you, uh, do you still have uh, triathlon in your uh, toolkit? I'm not doing it at all. Okay. So I put a hard stop. Yeah. Um, here's my retirement plan for triathlon. So 2014 was my last year as a pro. Mm-hmm. My last pro race was Ironman Arizona, so hmm. November of 2014. Okay. I got in that water, and I said, I don't want to do this. Wow. I don't. I don't. I, oh, throughout the entire swim, I was just swimming. I don't want to be here. I, wow. I didn't want to be doing it. I was, that was my, my self-talk. is like, yeah. I don't want to be doing this. And wow. then the bike, I was like, ugh, this stinks. And then I got a flat, and I was like, well, this really stinks. Oh, so man. I, did. I dropped out two-thirds of the way through that bike. No kidding. And that was it. Wow. I was, I was pretty low. And that whole year, 2014, I'd come off, you know, I wasn't in a positive, I was in a very negative trajectory mm. with my racing. And mm. then I'd eliminated a lot of other things in life to be yeah. able to focus on racing. Sure. So it's like if you're dedicating your life to it and it's not going well. Yeah. So you're not getting any steam from it. It's no longer exciting. Right. There's certainly no financial reward. Why keep doing something that sucks? So had I been more prudent, maybe I would have hung it up before that season, but mm-hmm. I didn't. So I quit racing pro after that season. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. you know what? I'll just go, I'll race amateur again and see if I can get the joy back. So I raced 2015 as an amateur. I won five races that year. No kidding. And I didn't really take any joy in it. Interesting. So I enjoyed, I was really enjoying the marketing side at that point. Okay. Like hustling around for my sponsors. Like yep. I was doing things for Laser at that time. Mm-hmm. I think still for Peace Coffee and Quintana Roo. So it's mm-hmm. like I was still enjoying those pieces. Like yeah. Being an ambassador for the brands and figuring out like, oh, okay, marketing is more kind of more fun than interesting you know, being being an athlete anymore. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after fifteen, going into sixteen, I was starting the year twenty sixteen. I was still thinking, oh, I'm going to race. I'm mm-hmm. going to race. I haven't signed up for anything. I'll probably get around to it. I haven't been yep. in the water. I was still running and riding. And then the spring of sixteen, I said, I don't have to. Wow. Like there's no. Yeah. There's so I no- just. Right. Sometime like around March of 2016, I said, well, I'm just not going to do that this year. Interesting. And so I just started going on group rides with a few of my cycling friends. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of bridged over into road cycling for a couple of years. And so uh, do you still have any of your old tri bikes? I listen, I worked <laughs> for a bike business called The Racery for a couple of years. Yep. And so I went. It was my first time having a real job. Right, mm-hmm. so it's like okay, I'm making a little bit of money. Yep. Plus, I'm, exp- I'm every day I'm around super high end bike equipment. Right, because we our business model was to get stuff off pro teams and sure. sell it on eBay. Yep. Well, I went through a little addiction. Oh, I 
was buying a bike every quarter oh, at least. Yikes. So there was a period in 15, 16, 17 when I was still working at the racer where I was buying way too many bikes. Wow. Um, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit too much. Um, so I had to jettison. Like I was buying, would buy something, sell something else. Yeah. Um, so I flipped through a pretty substantial fleet within that couple year span. Yeah. And now settled down. Good. What's in the fleet today? My... The main thing in the fleet is the Focus Paralane. Oh. It's kind of an all-roady type nice, bike. Nice, yeah. Uh, but I love it. I got 35C tires on it, carbon frame, Ultegra DI2. Beautiful. It. Wow. Know, it's got some pub wheels on there. Very cool. So that's that's my main staple. That's but I don't have a triathlon bike right now. Yeah. Uh, just just the Paralane. I have a BMC Grand Fondo an aluminum frame I'm still mm-hmm. riding. Yeah. That's a fun one. Yeah, another friend of mine has one of those and loves it. Yeah. Yeah, loves that that particular frame. Nice so you're doing a lot of gravel now? I mean, is that kind nope. of your... No? You nope. just like the big wide it's, tires on I, the road? I, 35, man. It, they're nice. <laughs> they ride smooth. So I they did uh, I did gravel for a couple of years when I was when I was racing road a little more actively. So in 16, 17. Mm-hmm. I did my buddy... Uh, my buddy's race, the Miesville 56. Oh, yeah. So that's a mainstay. I love going. This year I didn't even race it, but I just went out to support. Yep. Um, yeah, so. he came on the uh, came on the show this spring, and we talked about the about the event this year. It sounded like it was really fun this year. Oh, it's a really – he does an amazing job at that event. That's um, great. So that I did, uh, Drew Wilson's race down uh, the Dickie Scramble. Mm-hmm. I did the Dirty Benjamin. So I've done, I've done a few of the local – local gravel ones that's great and so uh do you have a favorite ride around here i mean what's your favorite course to ride around here Uh, (laughs) there's stretches of road uh out there by kind of by watertown Mm -hmm. there's some really nice stretches yep and i've been doing those you know i learned those in my triathlon days Mm -hmm. there's so i've been enjoying some of those um, stretches road ever since fun what's your what's on your bike bucket list do you have like epic rides that you really would love to to go on you know i got nothing in mind right now i do occasionally think of um a return to triathlon Mm. like that's at some point i kind of assume i will cool uh, when life stabilizes a little bit yeah um so i think about that a little bit but at at one point i had thought about the one the dirty kanza thought about that but never yeah never 200 miles of gravel seems super uninteresting to me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's it's why I raised beautiful Kansas countryside. Right. I grew up in Western North Dakota. I get what that countryside looks like. I don't want to ride a bike on gravel for 200 miles. It's a long ways. <laughs> it's a long ways. You know, that's why I picked up the velodrome because, uh, it's, you know, two minutes in a race, not 200 miles. <laughs> Jason likes to keep it a little more concise. You know, the way I look at it, it's like there's difference between pain and suffering. Like pain is a short-term turn yourself inside out kind of experience and yep. suffering is like where you turn your brain inside out for a long stretch of time. And I can, I can endure pain. Yep. I'm not good at suffering. You would, <laughs> yeah, you would, you'll stick to sprint draft. Yep. We've been talking off air. Of course, we've been talking about your first Ironman. Right. I think with this mentality about mm-hmm. pain versus suffering. Sprint seems like the right way to go. Well, sprint is where you're going to start, and I yep. think you'll more, be more suited. But we'll coach you up. We'll get you training for a couple of years. Good. Um, and I think within three years, you can easily do an Ironman. Okay. Well, that seems like a, a reasonable goal. No problem. <laughs> I have to learn how to swim. Not a problem. Okay. You can teach me yeah. how to do that? One arm, then the other. <laughs> okay. That's easy seems, as that. I think I could do that. Easy as that. Turn your head and breathe. Okay. 
I think I could do that too. All right. Well, I'm halfway there. Yep. Ride your bike for six hours, get (laughs) off, walk slash run for 26 miles. You're good to go. That's great. So, so you're obviously fully ensconced in real life now. Real life. Yep. You've, uh, you've got a relatively new real estate business. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing when you're in your real estate life. In 2017, I was plucked out of the bike industry Mm -hmm. and went to work doing marketing for a local home builder. Hmm. So I was in the office at Hanson Builders. Okay. They're a local builder. They build around 100 a year. Nice. So it was an incredible opportunity. My boss there, the VP of sales and marketing, Don Skelly, he'd been doing it 20 years. So mm-hmm. he's, he's so plugged in and he knows it, the, the volume of information in that man's head. It was great to be around. So I'm in the office with this guy for two years learning and like, Every yeah. chance I get, like, hey, Don, what's up, what's up with this and this? And this? Mm-hmm. So it was being around him and his energy, I got the bug. That's um, great. So almost immediately being there, I knew I would get my license. Mm-hmm. In 2018, I started the education. And then in January of this te- uh, this year, I got licensed. Nice. So I started out with a bigger brokerage for mm-hmm. a few months. And then stars aligned. I had my mentor, who is a broker at a boutique brokerage. Hmm. She'd walk me through my first few deals, mm-hmm. like literally like, okay, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Yeah. And then Don, my old boss, mm-hmm. who knows everything about everything, they were at the same brokerage all of a sudden. I was like, okay, I, that's, I don't know what stars I'm going to do, aligned. but I yeah. got to be over there. Yep. Um, so I've joined a team with my mentor, Kayla Gustafson. Mm-hmm. So we are Lux High Point Realty. Hmm. We're just starting our team now. That's great. So it's the two of us. She's bringing experience. I'm bringing energy and you know all this charisma so yeah. we're gonna do great fantastic are you focusing on a particular geographic part of town or a particular type of home serve the whole metro okay um my the one thing that i bring that is slightly different is i've been around new construction mm-hmm. so for folks who are ready to give up the urban dream and go get that four bed four bath yep. in plymouth and why is that at schools mm-hmm they're not all created equal. Right. And not all builders. It's it's like anything, not all builders are created equal. That's so right. Yep. If you work with an agent who kind of knows the lay of the land out mm-hmm. there in these in these new developments and can point you to a process-oriented builder, not a chaos-oriented yeah. builder. Yeah. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> if you build with a builder, you're building, it's a five to eight-month process usually. Mm-hmm. And if they're not organized, they don't have systems, they don't have process. It's really you tough. You as the client are going to hate your life yeah, so much. Yeah, it's going to be miserable. So and you, crabby on closing day. Yeah, and you won't be happy with the outcome. That's exactly right. So I, I look at only home builders who have um, project management software. Mm-hmm. So they have the tools to work with their clients. Yeah, smart. and keep everyone in the loop. Yeah. Do you have a website for your real estate business? You know, we're so new, we haven't even launched our site yet, but wow. we're getting close. So it's going to be luxhighpoint.com. LuxHighPoint.com. Yep. Very cool. So and L-U-X. Yep. Let's, let's spell it out. Let's make it easy for them to hire <laughs> me as their real. There you realtor. go. <laughs> Devin, Devin Palmer, D-E-V-O-N. Don't ever spell it with an I. D-E-V-O-N. <laughs> Palmer is my name. Yep. And it's Devin, D-E-V-O-N, at Lux, L-U-X, high, H-I-G-H, point, P-O-I-N-T-E. There's point an E at the end. Oh, LuxHighPoint.com. Dot com. Awesome. Devin at LuxHighPoint.com. We'll make sure that it, uh, we put that out on the show uh, website so that everybody can can reach out to you there. Where do they follow you for uh, more social things? You may, uh, you can find my realtor page if you want to keep it impersonal. Mm-hmm. If you're not a weirdo, you're more than welcome to friend me <laughs> on Facebook or follow me on Instagram. So on Twitter, I'm still D Palmer Trolls. Yep. 
I changed that. I was Deep Homer Tri, but I had retired from triathlon. I was focusing on my trolling career. <laughs> Twitter, I was also Deep Homer Trolls, but I realized, ooh, you know what? I want to use this platform to plug the real estate side. Right. Ooh, yep. Maybe trolls isn't the best keyword for <laughs> engaging with real estate clients who want to trust me with that transaction. <laughs> so I changed that. Uh, uh, is it Deep Homer Homes now? No, 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 no. It's, I think Deep Homer MSP. D or is it Devin Palmer MSP? Devin, Devin Palmer, Palmer MSP. MSP. Yep, that's the one. That's me. All right. Well, we'll make sure everybody gets out there. Devin, this has been a really fun conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. We've got a great show lined up for you next week. I'm going to head out to the Minnesota Metal Mixer here at Prize Brewing as soon as we hang up the phone here. And we will see you next week here at WMCN 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul. You've been listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles. Say white, say bar, I say bite, say shark, I say him and George was never my scene, and I don't like Star Wars. Say Rose, say Royce, say God, give me a choice. Say Lord, I say Christ, I don't believe in Peter Pan, Frankenstein, or Superman. Jesus, I don't wanna be a candidate for Vietnam. I wanna 